Luke's Gospel, please, if you would turn there to Luke chapter number 3. We're continuing verse by verse through this wonderful gospel. It's been my goal since we started in 2008 to preach through a gospel at least once every five years. So we began with John, and then the second five years we went to Mark, the third five years we went to Matthew, and here we are. We're in our 15th year of ministry, and I'm jumping right into it, to the gospel of Luke. And so let's continue as we look at the first 20 uh, verses this morning, Luke chapter 3. The Word of God says that in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill will be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics... To share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Well, we first were introduced to John back in Luke chapter 1. When the angel Gabriel revealed to Zechariah that he and his wife in their very old age 
would miraculously give birth to a son. Gabriel made clear that John was sent by God for a special purpose. In fact, we read there in Luke chapter 1 that he would come to turn many of the children of Israel to God and he would prepare people for the arrival of Jesus. Now, after that announcement, a few months later, we see John again. This time, he's in the womb of his mother, and he is uh, leaping at the news of Mary's pregnancy and the proximity of Jesus, who's now just a week old in his mother's womb. And then we see him again eight days after his birth, when Zechariah and Elizabeth present him to God in the temple. After that, nothing more is recorded. The only thing that we have here is in Luke chapter 1 in verse 80 where it says that John grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance, which is what we now see here in Luke chapter 3, his public appearance. Now that time living in the wilderness was... John's preparation time, years in which he developed his character, assured his calling, and strengthened his convictions. We don't know why this took place in the isolation of the desert. It could be that his parents, given the fact that they were of old age at his conception, had died, and he was taking care of himself, which, if true, may explain why he ate and dressed so different. I mean, the scripture says that all John ever wore was a robe of camel hair. And the only thing he ever ate was locust and wild honey. Perhaps if Elizabeth was still living, she would have made sure her son John was a little more put together than that. What we do know is that it was in the desert of isolation John was being prepared for the ministry that God had called him to. For those who are familiar with John the Baptist, you know that he was a successful preacher. All the gospel writings point out, as does Luke, that crowds of people in large numbers came out to listen to him. It's natural for any of us who preach the gospel, who are called into vocational ministry, that when we see something like this, we want to ask the question, what was it that made John so popular? Why was he so incredibly successful that crowds of people flocked to hear his preaching? Was it his appearance? Okay. There's no way. He wore a camel hair robe, remember? Now, I don't know exactly what that would have looked like, but I'm pretty positive he wasn't on the front page of GQ magazine. He didn't pick that up down at Joseph A. Bank. There was absolutely nothing appealing or attractive about John's appearance at all. In fact, he was borderline repulsive. One look at him and you're thinking, this is the preacher? He looks more like a caveman from the Geico commercials. I ain't listening to this guy. I mean, think about it for a moment. It could not have been his appearance. 
He lives in the desert. His hair is disheveled. He's got flies coming out of his beard. He probably stinks. And to top it off, he's wearing clothing that many of you would say this morning is not appropriate for church. In fact, some of you probably would have voted John the Baptist down as your new pastor because you didn't like the way that he looked. He wasn't successful because of his appearance. Well then, had to be his location. I mean, he must have had the best location in all of Israel. It made it easy for people to come. Maybe he set up his preaching ministry in a comfortable building with all the modern technology and space and convenience that anyone would enjoy. Maybe they went to hear John preach because it was easy to get to. The temperature in the building was always right. The stage lights worked, perhaps. And oh, maybe John set up a special place to park if you were coming to hear him for the very first time. I mean, it had to be ideal, right? Well, let me tell you a little bit about John's location, the Jordan Wilderness. A little bit has changed since then, as both James and I and others who have visited this location can tell you. But let me describe it in Linsky's words, the commentator who described the Jordan Wilderness at the moment of John's ministry. He said it was a hot, which still is, a hot an uninhabited depression totally removed from civilization. That's where John began his crusades. That's where he set up his ministry. Now, we, we don't think like that, do we? Well, let's get together and start a church, our newest church, uh, along with the, the Baker's Church in the New York. We're right there in the middle where all the people are. We're, we're going to start a church in Cornelius. Let's put it right there in the middle of the people. We, we, we don't think about it putting it 20 miles out into the wilderness where nobody's located. That's exactly what John does. It was a hot, uninhabited depression totally removed from civilization. A reminder, as Begg often says, that there is no idea place to serve God except the place where he has put you. So the most successful preacher of his day had a terrible location for his ministry. A terrible location. His appearance wasn't at all appealing Oh, I know what it was. This is what made him successful. It had to be his endearing personality. That must have been what it was. Maybe John had a winsome way with words. Perhaps his cheeks were even sore from constantly smiling with every phrase that came out of his mouth as he implored them to live their best life now. He must have been one of those touchy-feely preachers with a seeker-sensitive ministry. Well, if you think that, then you totally missed verse 7 a moment ago when he gives his introduction to the sermon. Standing on the banks of the Jordan River, I'm sure he walks up to the pulpit. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you for coming out today. It's a great honor to have you. I know you've traveled some from great distances. Now, I just want you to know that you're a brood of vipers. 
do you really think that you can come out here and escape the wrath of God? Let me tell you something. John's personality was not charming. So we cannot explain the incredible success of John's preaching ministry in ways that we often try to credit and measure success. And the reminder to me, to me this morning as I look into this text, is that my calling is not to oversee a ministry that seeks to impress the masses. Look at his appearance, his location. His personality. There's nothing impressive at all about John. Now, that's not to say that I should let my appearance go or that as a church we should stop taking care of the location God has given us. The point is this morning is that it is not those things in and of themselves that make the Lord's ministry successful. John's ministry was successful because, listen here, he was God's man. He was chosen and called by God to preach the gospel in the very place that God had put him. And when we are God's called people, doing God's called work in God's called way, he will bless it as he wills, regardless of who it impresses in the world. That's John. But let's look briefly this morning at some things about him in our text. First of all, and I just want to mention this and move on. The first point is John's world. Okay, John's world. And I, I specifically give this to you in your notes because we need to know the context of the world during the time in which God had called John to this specific task. And Luke brings that to our attention in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. I simply want to make three comments about this and we'll move on about John's world. Number one, verses like these, verse 1 and 2 specifically, throughout the Bible, are there in part to prove that the narratives in God's Word are fact, not fiction. They are history, not fantasy. That's why we have verses like this. In other words, these things happened historically and specifically during the 15th year reign of Tiberius Caesar. When Pontius Pilate was the governor of all of Judea, and Herod and Philip and Lysanias were tetrarchs, regional rulers, mayors, if you will. It happened during the time when the high priests were Annas and Caiaphas. So whenever we see those things, let's, let's not just skip through it well, like there's nothing to see here. No, the, the authors put it there. The Holy Spirit impresses us upon us because he wants us to know that this book is historical fact. That these things happened in a time in history where other things in the world were going on. This is not about Herod necessarily. It's not about Philip and Pontius Pilate and all these men. But what God wants us to know that the things that we are learning about Jesus happened during a time when other real historical figures lived. The other thing to note is that history shows us that under these particular rulers... It was a very dark time in the world. It was a time of moral and political chaos. I don't have time to go into the history of what was happening under these rulers, but suffice it to say that it was a very, very dark and difficult day. But then we note that also here, God's silence is breaking. God has been silent for 400 years. After 400 years of not speaking at all to his prophets, we read at the end of verse 2 that the word of God came to John. 
the word of God came to John. This is a beautiful phrase to me. God speaks his word once again. He speaks his word during a dark time, a difficult time, a morally and politically corrupt time. God has been silent, but now God is speaking again. Something special is happening. You know, I'm thankful this morning that God has spoken his word to us today. We don't wait for it audibly. It's already been spoken audibly and written for us for our learning, for our children's learning, for our grandchildren's learning. We can have absolute confidence today that we hold in our hands the voice of God. Oh, Pastor, I wish so badly God would speak out loud to me. You want God to speak out loud to you? Open your Bible and read it out loud. That's God speaking. Just as his word came to John, his word has come to us today. We are a people. We are a church that has been given the word of God. So that's what Luke wants us to know. This is the backdrop of John's ministry. It happens in a historical time of darkness and silence, but now God is speaking again. His word has come to John, and he has chosen John to be a light to the darkness around him. That's John's world. Secondly, write down John's ministry. John's ministry. We see this in verses 3 through 14. Now, I I must point out again that John's ministry was God-called. It was a God-called ministry. It was a God-called ministry. God came to John. God called John. Friends, I pity the man who attempts to carry out the ministry of the Word without the calling of God. Verse 2 specifically says that the Word of God came to John, verse 3, and he went. The Word came and he went. God called, John listened, and he went proclaiming the Word that God had given to him. That's what John went to do. He went to preach and proclaim what God had given to him, what God had given to him. I believe there is an issue today of people in many religious circles wanting to say something, but they have not been given something to say. That is, they have not been called. Called. I want to hear from those who have been called to proclaim the ministry of the Word. Look, we don't put people behind a pulpit or a lectern just because they want to teach or just because they're nice people and we, and we like them. Why don't you have them preach, Pastor? They're just so friendly and nice. Look, when I'm flying in an airplane, I don't care whether the pilot is nice or not. I want to know that he's been trained. I want to know that he's affirmed for the job, that he knows what he's doing when he climbs into that seat. So it is in the ministry. The modern church era today that we're in seems to have bypassed the calling of God altogether for nice guys who just want to say something. And they're standing in pulpits right now across the globe trying to lead churches, attempting, if you will, to fly a plane without a calling. 
I don't know about you. I don't want me or my family to be bored in that kind of a plane. The Word of God came to John. John was a God-called man. He didn't start preaching because he wanted to say something. He preached because God had put a calling upon his life to preach the gospel. That tells us about his ministry. I wrote down two things about his ministry. One, he was a preacher. He was a preacher. He went, verse 3, into all the region proclaiming, that is, preaching, preaching. Now, there were three thematic elements to his preaching according to Luke here. Uh, number one, he preached repentance of sin. He went preaching a baptism of repentance, verse 3 says, for the forgiveness of sins. Preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It is a reminder that without repentance of sin, no soul will ever be forgiven. Without repentance of sin, no soul will ever be saved. Repentance is the mark of God's grace being poured out on a person's life. How do we know a person is truly believed? How do we know that they have genuinely put their faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ to save them? When we see the fruit of repentance. Well then, what is repentance? If we have to repent of our sin in order for sin to be forgiven, we better understand what it is. Well, let me say it's more than regretting my sin. It involves that. Anyone who knows that they have willfully broken God's law regret that they have broken God's law. But it's more than just regret. It's actually abandoning my sin. It's to see my sin for how God sees my sin. And by His grace, turn away from it. And I, I may still struggle with it, but I don't want it. It may still be a temptation in my life, but I don't, I don't, I don't desire it. I want Jesus to change me. I want Him to cleanse me. I want Him to make me more like Him. That's repentance. And that's what John is preaching. He's, he's preaching repentance of sin to these large crowds. And so they ask him the same question that we just asked. What's repentance? What does it look like? That's what we have in verses 10 through 14. Verse 10 says that the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? In other words, what's repentance? You're telling us to repent of sin. What does that look like? What does that mean? And so in verses 11 through 14, he gives them some examples of true repentance. I'm not going to go back and reread it because it's just examples. But at the heart of these examples is this. It is a change of character. That's what repentance is. It is a change in our character. Again, bouncing off of the examples. Instead of lying, cheating, and stealing, he says you know repentance is happening when you are honest and generous and you help meet the needs of others. It's an example. Who you once were in sin, you are no more. God is changing your character. Now let me say this. Repentance cannot happen without faith in Jesus. 
without faith in Jesus as the Savior of sin and the Lord of all life. Listen very clearly to me this morning, because if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you're trying to figure all this out, how do I get righteousness of Christ in my life? How do I get to heaven? How do I make sure that I'm not under the wrath of God? Here it is. Salvation from sin is by faith alone. It is faith alone in Jesus Christ to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. It is trusting Christ's righteousness to come into your life and replace your unrighteousness. It is trust, it is faith in Christ alone. But, but the Bible says that faith is accompanied by a God-initiated change that starts taking place inside of us. That when we put our trust in the perfect righteousness of Jesus to cover the unrighteousness of our sinful lives, then repentance becomes an ongoing part of who we are. You don't repent once. You live a life of repentance. You live a life of changing. You live a life of God making you more like Jesus. I love what Luther said about this. Our whole life as Christians, is a life of continual repentance. Calvin said it like this, repentance is not just the start of the Christian life, it is the Christian life. I sin every day of my life. Expected my wife to say amen right there. She knows it more than anyone. Every day of my life. Sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously. Therefore, every day of my life, I am learning to turn from sin. I am learning to repent. I am yielding to God, molding and changing my character. That's the Christian life. The Christian life is saying, Lord, I trust you. I believe in you, and I'm going to give my life to you to change me however you want to change me. John is sitting on this bank of the Jordan preaching to these people saying, look, you can't come to Jesus and expect nothing to happen. You come to Jesus and your world's going to be turned upside down. He's going to start changing everything. He's going to begin on the inside and the next thing you know it, it's going to take control on the outside. And that's the good news. The good news is that when we repent of our sin through faith in Christ, we will experience complete and total forgiveness of sin. One commentator said, God requires repentance because he's holy. But he offers forgiveness because he's gracious. I want you to know that this morning. God is a holy God, but he is also a gracious God. And when you give your life to him, he will give grace to you in ways that you could never imagine. Oh, man, I got to hurry. John was a long-winded preacher, by the way, too. He preached repentance of sin. Secondly, he made a big deal about Jesus. He made a big deal about Jesus. Verse 4, he says, I'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I'm the voice. I'm the voice. I'm a voice. I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. Look, he didn't make a big deal about himself. He acknowledged 
that he was just a voice. Oh, look right here. A voice that had one sound. Jesus. 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 His preaching made a big deal about Jesus. That's why he says in verse 4, prepare the way of the Lord. He's coming. Jesus is coming. Prepare for him. Make his path straight. Because when he comes, every valley will be filled, every mountain will be made low, every cricket shall become straight, the rough places will become level, all the flesh are going to see the salvation of God. In other words, John is saying Jesus is on the way and he's about to turn this world upside down. You see, John was a Christ-centered preacher. He was a Jesus-exalting preacher. He used his voice not to promote politics. He used his voice not to promote himself. He used his voice to promote and proclaim Jesus. Verse 18 says, with many other exhortations. That means what we read here is not only the half of it. He said a whole lot of other stuff. And with everything he said, he always preached good news to the people. He always preached the gospel, the good news of Jesus. He made a big deal about Jesus. He preached repentance of sin. I wrote down number three, as we see clearly, he confronted hypocrisy. He confronted hypocrisy. Now, we learn from the other gospel accounts, including this one, that among the crowds were people who were interested, people who were not interested, but they were there to cause problems. Pharisees and Sadducees. Pharisees were the legalistic Jews. Sadducees were the liberal Jews, much like... Well, I'm not going to go there. But we had the liberals and the legalists. Both groups will be responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for intervening at that moment. Okay. These groups hated each other. All right. Let's do give an illustration. But a lot, this, this, this will not get me in trouble. It's like, it's like the Carolina fans and the state fans. Okay. They hate each other. They hate each other, right? But when Duke's on the court... We come together with state to wipe out Duke, right? That's how we do things. That's the Pharisees and Sadducees. They hate each other, but they always found commonality in one enemy. Jesus. Others. They hated each other, but the message that John was preaching went against who they were. It went against their doctrine. It went against their traditions. Even a quick study of the Gospels would show that this group of people, they were hypocrites. Hypocrites. So in verse 7, 8, and 9, John calls them snakes who actually think that they can slither away and escape God's wrath by their own righteousness. John says, no, your family identity as Abraham's children won't do it. Your religious keeping of the law won't do it. Unless you genuinely repent of your sin, you'll be cut down and thrown into the fire of God's eternal judgment. Now, I do not want you to misunderstand this. I do not believe that John's confrontational preaching was bombastic, nor was it arrogant. I don't believe that because the text goes to great lengths to show us that John was a meek and humble man. John is simply doing what every preacher has been tasked with the responsibility to do within his own personality. And that is to truthfully and passionately plead with sinners to flee from sin and turn to Christ. That's what he's asking them to do. And friend, that is what I'm asking you to do this morning. 
You may come here this morning and say, wow, this building this building's not as big as I thought it was, not as comfortable. I mean, there's people sitting all over the place. Now, now to me, that's exciting. Well, I understand it may make some people uncomfortable. Look at the preacher. Look at him. He's, this is the preacher? Yeah, this is the preacher. You should see me when I'm coaching. I don't know what you're thinking, man. There's nothing, there's nothing going on about his appearance. Look, look, look at this location. I don't really like his personality. His jokes aren't funny. He yells too much. You can't sit too close. You've got to bring an umbrella. You're going to get wet. I'm not asking you to come here and see me. I'm asking you to come here and see Jesus. And my passion and my truth telling to you this morning is to plead with you. Jesus is coming. Please turn from your sin and follow Jesus Christ. That's all John. I've heard my dad say this before. Uh, uh, God, Godzilla uh, was just misunderstood. You're just misunderstanding me this morning. If you think this is arrogance or bum box, bum bum whatever, <laughs> bombastic, you're misunderstanding me. You're misunderstanding me. This is John the Baptist saying, look, the only way you're going to escape the wrath of God is if you come to Jesus Christ. It's not your family heritage. You say, well, Pastor, my, my grandma was saved. I'm, oh, I'm so glad she was. But God has no grandchildren. You've got to come to faith in Christ. You've got to come to faith in Christ. Well, I used to go to church a long time. Oh, well, what are you doing now? What are you doing now? It's not your religious affiliations. It's not what you've done in the past. Where is your heart now? It's not your self-righteousness. I, I'm glad that you give to the charity. You're, you, you, you're, you're, you're a good parent. You, you, you don't go killing people and all that. So I, I'm glad for that. I'm glad for that. But that self-righteousness is not going to get you into the kingdom of God. It is faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ to come into my life and take the unrighteousness that is in me and remove it. Through his sacrifice. This is what John is preaching. He's a preacher. Secondly, and I'm just going to mention it and go on. He was a baptizer. I'm going to spend more time on this next week. Verse 7 says the crowds came out to be baptized by him. Now, we're going to look at it next week again with Christ's baptism. But John the Baptist was truly John the baptizer. That's why it was John the Baptist. The Baptist denomination did not begin with John in that sense. It was a description of what he did. He was John who baptized people. As sinners heard John's message of salvation in Christ, they did repent of their sin, and they made a profession of that repentance by being baptized. That's what baptism is. It is a public declaration that we have confessed our sins in repentance and put our faith in Christ. And that was no small part of John's ministry. It was a major part. Again, he wasn't John the preacher, John the politician, John the crazy man who lived in the wilderness. He was John the Baptist. It was a major part of his ministry. He had been called by God to preach the gospel and baptize those who received the gospel. Everything about his life was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then number three, and I'm, again, I'm just going to have to mention these in passing. We have John's world, John's ministry. Thirdly, John's humility, verses 15 through 18. His entire ministry was one that pointed to others and not to himself. He pointed to Jesus. He pointed to Jesus. This is the essence of godly leadership. To see 
those whom we minister to attached not to ourselves, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's mine and my colleagues' desires. We want to see those whom we minister to attached not to ourselves, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. John doesn't say to the crowds, follow me. In fact, he emphatically says to them, follow him. John, perhaps in the wilderness of his education, learned the important principle of life that we all struggle to learn and often learn too late. Self-forgetfulness. Self-forgetfulness. But for John, this pressure to make a name for himself, it was put to the test. Verse 15 tells us that as people were observing his ministry, they began to question in their hearts whether or not he was the Christ. Could this be the Messiah? This man, yeah, the guy wearing the camel hair robe that just bit off the head of that locust over there, dipping the body in honey on his lunch break. Is that, is that the Christ? It's actually fascinating. In John chapter 1, people came to him asking a bunch of questions about who he was. Who are you? Who are you? Are you Elijah, they asked? Are you Moses? Are you the Christ? We, we, need, we need to know who you are. Please, please tell us who are you. Tell us about yourself. Please tell us more about who you are. John didn't say, I'm so glad you asked me that. Why don't you pull up a chair? I'd love to tell you all the things about me. Have you seen my Facebook profile? No, John doesn't do that at all. He says, look, I'm a nobody. I'm just a voice. That's all I am. I'm just a voice trying to tell you about the one that you need to know. The one who's greater than me. The one mightier than I. The, the one whose strap of his sandals I'm not even worthy to touch. John 3.30, John the Baptist makes this statement about Jesus. Some of you know it by memory. He must increase. I must decrease. That's a pretty good motto for life. He must increase in my marriage. I must decrease. He must increase in my family. I must decrease. He must increase in my preaching. I must decrease. He must increase. I must decrease. I've never known a Christian who did not want the name of Jesus to increase. I've never known one. But the temptation for many of us is the desire for our name to increase along with His. But the reality of what John was saying is, He must do this and I'm not even going to stay here. He must do this and I've got to come down here. That I want him to get bigger and I want to get smaller. I want him to be more magnified and I don't even want you to know that I exist. But here's how we think as Christians. Jesus, increase and take me with you. It's an honest temptation. It's an honest struggle. But listen to me clearly. John wanted the spotlight to be put on Jesus while the curtain was pulled down on him. Let's not make it about us. Let's make it about Jesus. He must increase. We must decrease. And then finally, John's imprisonment. Verse 
John's imprisonment, verses 19 and 20. It's really a fast forward to the end of his life, which I know some of you are thinking, Pastor, I wish you would have fast forwarded to the end of your message. <clears throat> Herod was a wicked man. He was one of the most notorious wicked rulers of the day. And one of his prominent scandals, according to historians, is when he fell out of love with his wife and fell in love with his brother's wife, the both of which proceeded to divorce their spouses and marry each other. The couple was known for their evil. In fact, verse 19 tells us here in our text that he did a lot of evil things. And those evil things are a perversion, corruption, manipulation, adultery, murder. I mean, the list is long. And now added to his list of evils, according to Luke 3, is the imprisonment of John. And here's the reason why. Here's why John was thrown into prison. It wasn't because of his personality. It was because of his preaching. John reprimanded Herod for taking his brother's wife. And because he reprimanded his brother or reprimanded King Herod for taking Philip's wife, Herodias, he was locked up into prison. I, I, I think we are so far removed from this today. I find it of tremendous significance that what John preached in his pulpit, he wasn't afraid to say to the politicians. He did not excuse Herod's behavior because his politics may have been good. Nobody walked up to John, asked him, what do you think of Herod? And John said, you know what, we probably should vote for him. He's the lesser of two evils. And well, What about all these scandals? Well, just better than the other guy. After all, we're not asking him to be the pastor. We're asking him to be the king. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. John was as straightforward about the politicians and rulers of his day as he was the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, I don't know how John got this audience with Herod. The Scripture does tell us that Herod respected John's ministry, even though he was thrown into prison, which I believe was the manipulation and pressure of his wife, Herodias. But I don't know. I don't know how he got this audience with Herod. One way or another, John humbly yet boldly told Herod that it was not lawful for him to have his brother's wife. <laughs> was, was, was John asked to be the chaplain in the palace? Was he invited to come do a Bible study? Herod called him up on the phone. Hey man, what you doing? Oh, just chunking on some grasshoppers. <laughs> Dude, would you come up here to the palace? Herodias and I, we want to make a big dinner for you. And you know what? We've heard a lot about your preaching. Would you just come have a Bible study with us? Just tell us all those wonderful things about grace. Sure, I'll be right up. Knocks up the palace, knocks on the door, goes through all the security stuff, gets his ID, walks into the courtroom. Herod speaks, John, what you got for us today? Well, done a lot of praying about this, and here's what the Lord wants me to tell you. You both are wicked people, and you're living in sin, and you need to repent of it right now. You should have never taken your brother's wife. Now, let's pray. <laughs> that was his ticket to prison. But a ministry of truth does have costly consequences. 
And the question that maybe we're confronted with this morning is, are we willing to lose the comforts that the calling of God places on our life? And I close with this. John 1.14 tells us that not only is Jesus full of truth, but he's full of grace. He's full of grace. That from his fullness, we who believe receive grace upon grace. It's a beautiful verse, John 1, 14, 15, and 16. When we trust Christ, we receive grace, but not just grace. We receive grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It's a beautiful truth, isn't it? And an important one. Because if God dealt with us according to truth alone, none of us would escape the wrath of God. The wrath that is to come. But thankfully, he deals with us on the basis of grace and truth. The truth is this morning, judgment is coming, Jesus is on the way, and when he comes, he's going to turn everything upside down. But the message of grace is, if you repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be forgiven, you will be saved, and judgment will be taken off of your future. I wonder this morning. Has the word come to you? Will you receive it? Will you believe it? Will you turn from your sins and follow Jesus Christ as Savior? It is the only way of escape. It's the only way of peace, joy, and a life filled with the gracious blessing of God.